It really is good to be with you today. Um, you might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and you can take a look at uh, what our topic is for today. The question, why does God hate sex? A frank conversation about sex. And what I want to do as I start the message is I want to pray for grace. We've been praying for God's grace uh, before each of these loaded, uh, loaded uh, questions. And we want to ask God for the grace to help unload them in, in a respectful and a biblical and appropriate manner. And, and we, we recognize that whenever we're talking about this issue, the issue of sex, that um, all of us are coming into this conversation, discussion with, with baggage. We all come with preconceptions. We all come with experiences. We all come with hurts. And, and there are these wounds that are um, sort of gathered and carried with us through life. And, and so I just recognize that, that we are in desperate need of God's grace today. As we start talking about this message, that we need God's grace for ourselves. Uh, we need his grace in the area of our wounding and our brokenness. And, and we need his grace for one another, again, as, as we have conversations and, and we wrestle through some of these issues about our sexuality. So would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and let's, let's pray together. And Jesus, we do believe the words that we sang earlier. We believe that you are our healer. We believe that your power and your presence and your grace are more than enough to rescue us and to redeem us and to carry us forward. And, and so we simply pray for your word and your wisdom. We, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and be present in our time together. And, and we do ask, especially for anyone here who is, is burdened by shame or weighted down just by the very topic because of abuse in the past, woundings, um, the enemy. We just, we just pray for that person right now and that they would be wrapped in your arms of grace. So we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, so the question, you can see the topic that we're talking about. Why does God hate sex? Answer, he doesn't hate it. He invented it. Let's close in prayer. Okay. What we want to do is we, we want to have an honest conversation about sex. We want to sort of put on our big boy pants and let's talk about what is the whole deal with it. And so, uh, and so I thought I'd start with a story. It's a, it's a true story. A couple of friends of mine, I'll call them D and R, and they're both friends. Uh, a buddy named D, and um, I actually was a part of his wedding ceremony. This is now five, six years ago. And um, they got married. He was 30. She was 26. They both were virgins. And um, so, uh, and, and we celebrate that. And, and so after they got married, I remember having some follow-up conversation with them. Because I did a little bit of premarital counseling with them before the wedding. And had a little bit of conversation with them after the wedding. Uh, maybe a year or so into it. Just asking how things were going. And and they were reporting that things were going great. They were head over heels for one another. Uh, just absolute honeymoon phase. He just was convinced he had married the cutest cutie ever. She convinced she had married the studliest stud ever. And they were just so excited about their physical lives. Like, like how excited? Five times a week excited. Like, like they just were, it was very much a part of their story. And, and so that's great. You know, newlyweds, right? That happens. And but I was following up with D uh, maybe a couple weeks ago and just asking him how things were going. Now, it's five, six years into marriage. They're expecting. And I just said, now, you guys were kind of ravenous on the front end of this thing. Um, 
How, how is that now? How are you guys, you know, enjoying your, your physical relationship now? And he kind of shrugged and smiled and said, we still enjoy it. <laughs> and I share this story because I want you to understand that God has a plan for sexuality. And God's plan, this is from, you know, time immemorial. It's in the, the deepest recesses of our biblical heritage God's plan is for the healthiest, most fulfilling, most intimate, most passionate sex lives ever to be found in Christian marriages. That's God's plan. The ideal is that I would not even have to preach any message about how you need to wait until you're married to have sex. The ideal is that the entire culture would somehow sense that the hottest, most passionate, most fulfilling, most intense and intimacy-inducing sex is happening in Christian bedrooms. And for there to be no thought in the world's mind that if I want to have the best sex ever on planet Earth, I'd better do it God's way. But obviously we don't live in an ideal world. And the problem is that married folks aren't constantly stoking that fire. It gets boring, it gets passe, it gets routine, uh, it even stops happening altogether. Marriages become bloodless without passion, and then it's pretty easy for the kids to see, oh, mom and dad are like roommates who barely tolerate one another. And so when that happens, it's pretty easy to see that both men and women, husbands and wives, begin to look outside of the marriage bed for titillation, for fulfillment, for some kind of relief from their boredom or isolation. And of course, the culture and the enemy and our flesh provide all kinds of interesting substitutes for God's best. We call those temptations, and there are all kinds of temptations to pursue. So let me tell you whose plan that is. That's Satan's plan. That's the enemy of God's plan that couples after marriage would begin to yawn and look outside of the marriage bed for fulfillment. So the question comes up, I've been asked, maybe you've asked this question before, well, why does God want to interfere with my sex life? And the answer is because the enemy of God has been interfering with your sex life all the time. He's been messing with you since day one. Your sexuality is an area of deep vulnerability and insecurity and pleasure and power. And so Satan has been assaulting that battlefield your entire life. And you only have to think about your own history to realize this is true. There's an experience perhaps in in grade school where you were assaulted, where you were maybe mocked or made fun of. Only think about a time in junior high where you were deeply insecure about the formation of your body or thoughts or feelings that you were having, where hormones were raging in you. And at some point along the way, in a moment of desperate temptation, most of us have made agreements with the enemy of God, where we've said things like, I want this so badly. If I could just get laid, then I'd be a man. If I was larger here, smaller here, taller, sexier, flatter here, not so flat here, this is all I need. I want this more than anything. I'd sell my soul if I could just. We make all sorts of agreement with the enemy of our souls. We believe his lies. He's been interfering since day one. 
In fact, C.S. Lewis said this many years ago. He writes, for the past 20 years, you and I have been fed all day long on good, solid lies about sex. It's true. So the question, why does God care about what happens in my bedroom? The answer is because God cares about what happens in every area of your life. He made you with a purpose. He invites you to step into his glory. And the sanctification of your being involves all of you, all mind and all heart and all soul, all body. It's, it's all of your strength. It's everything. The restoration and the cleansing of all of you. And God knows how vulnerable we are in the area of our sexuality, how powerful and influencing experiences of sex or thoughts of sexuality can be. So, of course, God cares. He wouldn't be a good dad if he didn't care. And he is a good dad. And so he cares about this explosive and powerful elements, uh, the most explosive and powerful element of our lives, this area of sexuality. So we have to then unpack, well, what is God's plan for sex? What's the, what's the purpose? What's the point of it? Um, and I would answer, the answer is, is bonding. It's intimacy. And some, there are a couple of things, and somebody else could argue, well, no, it's about reproduction. Yes, it is about reproduction. You can't really do the reproduction thing without sex. Um, but I just want you to understand that God in nature, there are all kinds of ways that reproduction happens. And God in his wisdom decided to make sex the way that reproduction happens for humans. And think about how boring it would be if it was like earthworm reproduction, right? You'd be like sawing yourself in half. What are you doing? Oh, I'm reproducing, you know. Uh, you guys know what grunion are? Grunion are a fish. Uh, they, they, run, they make these runs in Southern California, and, and in, in junior high, did a grunion run. You go and you visit the beach in the sort of the second full moon when the tide is blue and da-da-da, you know, like um, all these female fish swim up on the beach, and they plant themselves in the sand, and then all the male fish come, and they fertilize the sand, and that's how grunion are born. Thank you, God, that you did not come up with that plan for us. There there are all kinds of ways that reproduction can happen. Sex is so much bigger than that conversation. It's about intimacy. It's about bonding. It's about oneness. And chemically, this is a verifiable reality, right? Science has verified. There's this thing called oxytocin, which is a hormone really... If you write it down, write it correctly, it's not oxycodone, it's oxytocin, okay? Oxytocin is released when skin-on-skin affection occurs. Skin-on-skin releases oxytocin. So, for example, in childbirth, my son Caleb was born. The midwife immediately handed him to me and said, hey, you need to take off your shirt and hold him against your chest. Why? To release that oxytocin and to create that sense of bonding. The counselor that Jody and I were walking through when we walked the road of adoption, he counseled us. He said, look, as you're walking the road of adoption with Doozy and you finalize the adoption, he says, I want you to focus on being physically connected with Doozy as often as possible. If you're watching TV, that's great, but just make sure you're snuggled right next to each other during that experience. If he's reading you a book, make sure he's sitting on your lap. Do as much of that touch as possible, that safe and appropriate touch. Why? Because it releases oxytocin. It creates a sense of bonding and intimacy. This is how God has wired us. And so during the act of sex, oxytocin is going crazy. 
as well as things like vasopressin. All these endorphins are released, which are the body's natural painkillers. They produce a general sense of well-being, feeling soothed, peaceful, secure. Friends, this is God hardwiring into our chemistry the reality that sex enhances the bonds of commitment and intimacy. It's how he's made us. And so the scripture says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the, I'd love you to circle that. Circle that phrase, please. That, above it, you can write intimacy. That's, what, that, that's the biblical phrase, being bonded together, covenanted. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then in the New Testament, Jesus quotes that passage. He affirms that that's God's plan, that, that, that there's that sexual union within the covenant marriage relationship. And some of you, you hear that, and then suddenly you're convinced, oh, see, I was right. God does hate sex. He limits it so completely. He doesn't want sex outside of marriage. He doesn't want sex before marriage. I, I want to get married, and so I want to know, you know, if, if she's good in bed, right? I want to I try it out before I buy. You'd never buy a car without taking it for a test drive, right? <laughs> you heard that one? That's pretty crazy. It's a tough analogy to think about sex like taking a car for a test drive. Because who's in charge of that analogy? The driver. It's all about the driver's pleasure. Hey, this car pleases me. This car doesn't please me. It doesn't please me. I park it in the lot. I walk away. No impact whatsoever. No, no effect deep within me, right? And so that's a tough analogy because it's just not true. No, sex affects us both deeply. Both parties impacted incredibly. No, maybe a different kind of analogy to think about would be like buying fruit at a grocery store. Do you take a bite out of an apple before you decide if you want to buy it? Right? Do you take a bite out of every apple you're going to buy? Like, uh, oh, oh, that doesn't taste good. I'll leave it. You know, oh, that's delicious. I'm going to keep that. Well, no, because that, that affects the reality of the apple. So regardless of whether you leave it or take it, there's going to be some impact. And again, that analogy falters because the shopper taking a bite out of himself too and, or herself too. And that's weird to think about shoppers biting themselves. So I, I mean, like the analogy doesn't work. But I just want you to understand that it's, it's powerful. It's for intimacy. It's for bonding. God wired us this way, and it's a part of his plan and purpose for our sexuality. So sex used outside of God's best does have an impact deeply on both parties, regardless of how nonchalant we try to make it in our culture. And I'm not trying to preach guilt, friends. I'm simply trying to elevate our perspective to God's. He does not hate sex at all, and he doesn't hate you. He loves us deeply, and he's given us a gift in our sexuality, and he prizes it as a gift. And so his encouragement is to honor it, and to honor him with it, and to honor one another as we deal with our sexuality. And so the Apostle Paul writes this. This is in 1 Corinthians 6. There's some verses we'll read here as he's writing. He says, don't you realize your bodies are actually parts of Christ? So for those of us believers, we, we've been joined with Jesus. Jesus joined with us. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. What's he talking about? Was there prostitution happening in the Corinthian church? There was, but it was actually different than what you think. Uh, in Corinth, as in most of the Hellenistic uh, culture of the day, a prostitution in the temple, both homosexual and heterosexual prostitution, was a part of their worship experience. So 
so the practice was, you know, on the way home from work, you'd swing by the temple and do a little worship, and then you'd come in, hey, honey, just stop by the church for a little worship, and I'll be back, you know, and, and, and that's the kind of religion, by the way, men make up, okay? That's, that's what we do. When left to our own devices, we, oh, we like sex. Let's, let, let's, let's worship with sex. Like, that's a good church growth strategy that we are not going to use, just so you know. So that, that's what Paul's talking about. Look, look, you're, you're a part of Christ. Jesus is in you, and you're in him. So, so there's this supernatural reality that's going on. He says, should you unite that with a prostitute? No, he says. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, look at this, he becomes one body with her. You see, this is God's design for sex to be unity, intimacy, oneness. For the scriptures say that two are united into one, but the person who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So the conclusion here, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. What's that? It's Christ on the cross. It's crucifixion. So you must honor God with your body. Okay. So that's, that's the picture that we're to, to shoot for, honoring God with our body, right? We want him to be the Lord over all of our life, including our sexuality. But what has our culture, and in some respects, what have most of us, at some point or another, what have we turned sex into? For so many of us, for all of our culture today, we, we've turned it into an idol. We've somehow elevated it to the place of highest honor in our lives. That, that we've made this like the highest aim that we would be sexy. We, 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 it's like, it, that's what we define ourselves by based on who we want to have sex with. Like we have, we have elevated it to this incredibly high place. And I, and I just want to say that, that we've got to deal with this reality. I've, I found this quote from Malcolm Muggeridge. He says, sex is the mysticism of materialism and the only possible religion in a materialistic society. We're in a materialistic society and sex is the only possible religion there is. Why? Because we all of us yearn for transcendence. All of us yearn for something that would sweep us up and get us elevated above this material realm in which we live. And sex has the power to do that. And so we've made it a God. We have, we have made it an idol. And so what Paul's trying to do in this passage and what Pastor Mike's heart is in this is just to put sex in its proper place. It cannot be an idol, friends. It cannot be our God. It will fail us and leave us. As Mick Jagger said, unsatisfied. He can't get no satisfaction. And if we make it an idol, that, that'll be true for us as well. So intimacy with Jesus is what your heart truly seeks. We've talked about this again and again and again. I'm gonna encourage you to care more about your love relationship with Jesus than I am about your love life. That's for all of us. We care more about our love relationship with Christ than about our love lives. 
So, uh, but we do want to talk about some healthy sex kind of an opportunities here. So in premarital counseling, we make sure that sex is one of the topics that is discussed. We, we just create space for a, a couple in premarital counseling to have conversation about finances, conversation about in-laws, conversation about housekeeping chores, and conversation about sex. Because it's so important. And instead of a unifying factor, so often it becomes a, a battleground. And so I just want to tell you that there is a key to success in our sexuality within marriage. And, and you can write this down. It's really, really important. Uh, the key to success in marriage is simply this, often and in sync with one another. I know the exact right number of times that every married couple should be having sex. You ready for this? It is the exact amount of times they mutually decide upon. No? You guys with me? I want to tell you this. You guys are, you're quiet because you're like, sex, what's he going to say? I'm so freaked out right now. What's he going to say? But the 920 crowd, they weren't quiet. They were giggling like junior high kids. It was so funny. So anyway, relax, guys. I love you. God loves you. Okay. Here's the deal. It's, there's a mutual decision process that has to happen. And that, that happens within marriage. And so in premarital counseling, what a great time to have these conversations, start wrestling this stuff through. You know, I started with a story about DNR and how many times they had sex, five times a week. And some of you instantly felt frustrated, frightened, and like a failure. Because you're like, five times? Oh, man. There's no way. In fact, I was talking to a buddy of mine that helps me wrestle through some concepts of, of Scripture and how put together the message this week, and I shared that story with him. He said, oh, Mike, man, in my life, with the, with the age of our kids right now, where my wife and I are, how busy we are, like, if five times is the standard, then I, I'm a failure. I feel like a total failure. I said, well, well, talk to me. What does the intimacy in your marriage look like? And he said, well, maybe two times a week, maybe less. He said, but, but I feel very intimate with my wife, and I think if she were here, she'd say, I feel very intimate with my husband. We, we actually have talked about this. We feel like we're in a really solid season. Here's the point. The point's not five times a week or two times a week. I, I don't want you at all thinking about, hey, we're in this marriage. We gotta, we gotta look outside to see what kind of sex they're having so that we can have better sex and beat them. It's not a competition. This is not high school where you tell the buddies, hey, oh, you know, last night was a good night. You know, like, no, no, no. It, it's not about what they're doing. Let's beat them. It's about what's going on here. Are, are we walking a road of intimacy? Are we being bonded? Are, 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 is Christ the Lord of this, and, and are we walking with him? So, so let me give you uh, some guideposts. And I want to say this because I realize that in, in marriage, so often what happens is one one uh, member of the marriage has a higher sex drive and one has a lower sex drive. So you just have to hear sort of the umbrella statement. There has to be mutual submission in it. That the one with the higher sex drive uh, needs to be submissive and, and to say, hey, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my expectations downward. And the one who's less excited about uh, the sexual experience needs to be submissive and to bring their desire upward. Do you see that? It's got to be both. And, and it's because of intimacy and it's for the desire of passion. 
within the marriage. So, so that's just the overarching. But let me give you a few guideposts. If you're filling in the blanks, these are some guideposts for healthy sexual exp- expression within marriage. And I believe these are all biblical. And I believe that I can share these with you and still you know, keep my job on Monday morning. So here it is. If you're filling in the blanks, the first one is that it would be mutually invitational. Not always initiated by one member in the marriage, but both would initiate, both would be interested, uh, because for both, there should be the prize of intimacy and bonding. Okay. Now, I want to encourage you to break out of some of the normal cycles of your life. Um, That's why we talk about date nights as being so powerful, because there's a normal rhythm to life. There's a normal rhythm of the day, normal rhythm of the week. And when you change up the normal rhythm, all sorts of cool and interesting conversations and experiences can happen. So this is actually called the psychology of place. And it's a real deal. You can write this down. But we all have emotions and um, a response to a physical location. I'll just tell you, if you're in your kitchen... Right? If you're, if you're uh, you know, a married couple, in your kitchen, there are all sorts, thousands of memories and associations you have with your kitchen. And so it'll be cooking dinner, it'll be making breakfast, it'll be getting the kids lunch ready, packing them, getting out the door. That's where all the business of the home happens. So there's all kinds of associations with kitchen. That's why it's, it's difficult maybe to, to have the romance start when one or both of you are cooking dinner. Right? Maybe that's tough for you. Uh, for some of you, the living room or the family room, uh, that's where you sit on the couch and you zone out in front of the TV together, right? Th- that's your association, right? Is, 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 uh, or maybe it's just total family and, and that. So, and then maybe the bedroom, right? The reason why that's not working is because the bedroom is where you are exhausted together, okay? That's just where we go to pass out, right? And so that's why, you know, getting out, going to a restaurant, it disrupts the normal flow and the normal rhythm. And there's a great sense of freedom there. You, you treat one another differently in a public setting, right? Yeah, you have an elevated conversation in that setting. Go to a hotel room, and there's, there's a different place and a different vibe. Why? It's that, that psychology of space. So that's why we push this idea of, of switching up the rhythms and making sure that you prize a date night. And I would say fall in love with one another's bodies, God's given you this body, he's given, and you're giving your body to your spouse. Your spouse is giving their body to you. And, and so fall in love with one another's bodies. In order to do this, in order to invite your spouse to fall in love with your body, you've got to be comfortable in your own skin. But this is what the Bible talks about. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be intoxicated with her love. Some of you are like, I didn't realize that was in the Bible. (laughs) It's a good book. You should read it. A lot of good stuff in there. It's that idea of being mutually invitational and that you would fall in love with one another and and just allow that to be a part of the intimacy building. The next fill-in is that you'd be mutually generous. And so the words I want to use around this point are that you would be lovingly, generously working to meet the emotional needs of your spouse. And this may include, uh, but it's not an exhaustive list, conversation, cuddling, Kissing, snuggling, getting away, prizing one another, love texts, love gifts, sweet nothings, 
that you would find the language that your lover bride speaks, that you would find the language that your lover husband speaks, and that you would speak that language generously to them in your home and in your life together. So mutually generous. It also means that when you're together physically, you work to meet the physical and sexual needs of your spouse. Now, there's a book in the Bible. It's called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Uh, Just by show of hands, how many of you are familiar with this book in the Old Testament of the Bible? Just raise your hand if you know the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. So it's pretty steamy, right? Um, You read that book, and and, in fact, in ancient Israel, um, boys weren't allowed to read that until they reached a certain age. Because it was so explicit, it was so permission-giving. And I just want you to understand that, that um, you know, most of the Christians, most of the pastors that I grew up under, I, I couldn't imagine them including Song of Songs in the Bible. I mean, this is the Bible, you know? And, it, and here's this book that was, that's incredibly liberating about what it looks like to enjoy sexual expression within the context of marriage. And so I just want you to understand that there's sort of an umbrella here of God saying, no, within this covenant of marriage, there is incredible freedom of expression in lovemaking, mutuality in the marriage bed. So I'll just answer a few questions that I have received over the years. Maybe these are questions that you have. Uh, The first, the question about toys. Can we use toys in our marriage bed? Sure. It doesn't seem like there's any prohibition of that. There's a lot of freedom that God gives. How about sexting, right? Sexting is when you take like, you know, glamour shot of, you know, of yourself. You send it to your husband or wife. You glamour shot. Send it. Sure, I, you know, as long as it's legal. I think it's legal in wife. You know, as long as it's legal. But I just, I'll give you a caveat here because I'm married, you know, Jody and I have been together 18 years. We got three kids at home. My kids roam our house all over the place, right? My kids are always grabbing my phone and playing a game on it or whatever. They're already going to be in therapy because their dad's a pastor. I would hate to, like, really screw them up, you know. Uh, Because I know they would find something in my home. They would be like, you know, oh, Dad, what's this? You know, it's got a French name. It's got a feather on it. What's it, you know? Or, like, plus the fact that I couldn't imagine me taking a, a, a picture of myself and sending it to Jody and... That would get her at all hot, you know, like. Maybe me cooking at the stove, like, hey. That might do it, you know. Couple more questions. Well, what about, you know, phone sex within marriage? Sure. What about masturbation? Sure, again, there's no prohibition on this stuff. And and I could envision circumstances. Like, let's say one of the spouses is stationed overseas for a year. In fact, I know a story of a guy who was accidentally, he's an overlaker, accidentally exposed to a toxic chemical agent as a part of his job, and he was quarantined from his wife for a year. So they had to get creative. And I just want you to understand, listen, if, if the husband and wife are on the same page, if they're seeking to be intimate with one another, if Jesus is the Lord, there's a mutuality in their love and honor of the marriage bed, then there's no biblical prohibition to enjoying one another as you will. But the two of you must decide, right? The two of you are going to have to talk about the stuff. And that's the great irony. 
We have a culture that thinks nothing of being physically intimate with one another, and yet we are terrified of being emotionally intimate or conversationally intimate. And so you're going to have to have these conversations. You're going to have to wrestle some of this stuff out and, and be mutual in it. But the Bible refers to some add-ins as well, like oils, spices, incenses, candlelight, lamplight, music, baths, couple spa packages, right? All of these have, uh, speak to the incredible freedom we have in Jesus. However, and I, and I have to mention this, lust is clearly prohibited all the way throughout Scripture. Why? Because it takes our heart and our mind away from intimacy. Right? God has given us this gift of sexuality for the sake of bonding and covenant and intimacy, and lust runs in the other direction. And so all this stuff that I just mentioned, it can all be sinful if the manner that it's used isolates someone or it directs attention away from intimacy and towards satisfaction of one spouse at the expense of the other. You know, the Bible talks about our sexual desires like a flame. The book of Proverbs asks, can a man scoop fire into his lap without getting burned? And what lust does is lust fans the flame, right? So think, you know, this issue of pornography for a second. What porn does is it sets sex up as a god, and it unnecessarily pours gasoline on the fire of desire. So I know porn use has gone up among women in these last years, but it's been a trap for men from the beginning. And so I just want to say to you, I want to encourage you, get help if, if you're in it. You don't need to remain trapped here. Some of you, you're wondering, why am I so sexually agitated all the time? Why is my head constantly on a swivel? Why am I, I'm just always thinking about it. Why? Maybe because you're fanning this lust. Maybe it's because there's a porn element to your life. It'd be like a fireman showing up at a house fire and instead of dumping water on the blaze, He's dumping lighter fluid on it, wondering why it's not going out. And I just want to say this. You do not need to remain trapped there. God loves you. There's no sense of shame or condemnation, just an invitation to freedom. God loves you too much. He loves your heart too much. He he has such great things in store for you. So, So don't think that you have to remain trapped. We want to pray for you. We want to walk with you. We've got ministries like Celebrate Recovery and support groups. We, there's all kinds of ways that you can experience the freedom that God has for you. So, so please understand that. Okay, next fill-in. Mutually invitational, mutually generous. The next one is mutually gracious. And, and this is the, the point where if your spouse is hesitant or hurting around the area of their sexuality, be grace-filled for them. That we are to be patient with one another. We're to be tender with one another. These are biblical commands. We're not to be demanding of one another. If you're the spouse who has a hurting spouse in this area, it's your responsibility to make your spouse feel safe so that they might pursue healing. You communicate that you love them unconditionally that you are absolutely committed to them and to walking this road 
together. But to the spouse who is hurting, to you today, I would say that you're hurting, um, that God loves you too much to leave you there. And that it is okay for you to recognize, you know, I need to be humble enough to pursue my healing. Only the enemy of God will be happy if you choose to remain in your brokenness. And so we just recognize that, that, that you have an opportunity to be open to counseling and to be open to walk in this road of, of experiencing the full healing of God in your life. And some of us have blockages. I, I just recognize this. Some of us, incredible wounds have happened in our lives because of our history. Many of you who know my testimony know that you know, I'm a, I've been molested by a, by a church leader in the past, right, in my childhood. And, and at the age of five, I was introduced to pornography. I'm what um, psychologists call I'm an early sexualized child. Right? And there was a lot of sexual play in my grade school years and stuff. And there's, so, there's been all of this brokenness in my path and all of these agreements that I've made with the enemy along the way. And, but I just want you to understand that, that I don't want to use that as an excuse to remain there. You know, in my journey, I've spent seasons and actually years in counseling as we identified these things, called them out, and prayed the healing of Christ over them. And so I can honestly stand before you and say, you know what, I, I can tell you that I've, I'm experiencing the healing of Christ in my life over this area of my sexuality. Not fully healed. Maybe that day won't come until I stand before the Lord face to face. But I can honestly tell you I'm experiencing his presence. I'm experiencing his power. I'm experiencing Christ's healing in my life and over my sexuality. And that's the great hope, and that's what I encourage for all of you. So here's the last fill-in. We are mutually broken, but we can be mutually healed. One of the beautiful things that I think happens within marriage is that God uses our husband to help us in our healing journey. God uses our bride to assist us in our healing journey. There's this, there's this beautiful mutuality of healing if we invite the Lord. So Paul says this in Ephesians 4.17. He says, now I say this, I testify in the Lord you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Remember we talked about that religion, the, the paganism, the, the temple uh, prostitution that was happening. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, check this out, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, practice of, uh, greedy to practice of every kind of impurity. Would you circle the phrase, have given themselves up? Paul's saying, these folks have given themselves up, but friends, don't you give up. Don't give up. Don't give yourselves over to it. We recognize this is a wrestle and a struggle for some of you, it's daily, for some hourly, but don't give yourselves up to this. And there's, Paul continues in Ephesians 4, please read it on your own this week, it's It's powerful. But he continues and he has this interesting assessment of what happens when we don't deal with our wounding, when we don't deal with our emotions correctly. And he says just a little bit later on, he says, when you allow bitterness to seep into your heart, you give the devil a foothold, he says. I put the verse on your notes. This is Ephesians, same passage, just a few verses down. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. 
So this is true when you let bitterness uh, reign in your life, when you let it linger. This is true in the wounds of our sexuality and we let them stay and fester when we don't invite the healing of Christ to come in. And so what we're doing, the scripture says, is we're giving the devil a foothold. So I want you to think for a second about a climber climbing a cliff face. That foothold is very similar. In the Greek, it's like a climber looking for a handhold or a toehold as they're climbing a cliff face. And so you could just think, like, what Satan's trying to do is he's trying to climb and ascend your heart. He's trying to speak his lies deeper and deeper and deeper. So he's going to try to scurry up the, sort of the cliff face of, of, of your heart. But what a climber does is they climb a few feet, and then they take a cam, and they wedge it into a crevice. It's that, uh, it's that ring that then they can hook a carabiner on, they can run their rope through, right? And it, it provides them easy access the next time they want to climb. So some of you, you wonder, why is it that I go from zero to 100 in a second? Why is it I'm not even thinking about lust and all of a sudden something happens and it's a trigger and boom, I'm all the way there. It's because we've allowed the enemy to not only have a foothold or a handhold, but he's, he's got a well-worn root. And we've never taken the time to get rid of those footholds. We've never taken the time. In fact, they've, they've moved. They're not only footholds and handholds, they're now strongholds. The devil has, an, he's got a, a full-on heated gondola going right now to the top, you know. And, and we have the opportunity, and this is the great hope for all of us. We have the opportunity to invite God's spirit to be the Lord over every area of our lives, including our sexuality. We've got the, the opportunity to think about those areas of woundedness in our life, those areas of agreement where we've agreed with the enemy, those covenants that we've made, vows that we've made to lies. And we've got the opportunity to just pray and invite the Holy Spirit of God to come into those places and dislodge the footholds of the enemy, to to remove the strongholds of the enemy that he might uh, dwell there and reign supreme, okay? So Paul wraps up his thoughts on this. He says in, in verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we're to be made new in the attitude of our minds. We're to put on the new self the self where the Lord reigns supreme. And if I could just summarize all that we've talked about right here, I would just say that, you know, the bottom line is that sex is about intimacy with your spouse. And friends, everything, everything is about intimacy with Jesus. And so what I want to do right now is I, I want to lead you in a prayer. And I know that in a room this size that, that there are so many of us that we need the healing that Jesus brings in regard to our sexuality. So the first thing that I want to do is I want to lead us in a prayer of intimacy with him. And then what we're going to do is we're going to walk a road where we ask him to be the Lord of our sexuality. And we ask him to remove the footholds and the strongholds of the enemy of our lives. Okay? So let's, let's pray together. Jesus, until we understand that 
there is a brokenness in each one of us, we just confess that discipline is, is mostly useless. We, we need and we desire to let Jesus heal our sexuality wherever it might be broken. And so right now, Lord, what we want to do is we want to just think over our lives, over our experiences, over our thought processes, and we want to call out any of the agreements that we've made with the enemy. We just, we just, before you now, we just confess those things. Right now, we recognize that there have been wounds created, times that we've been taken advantage of, abused, horrifically misunderstood. There have been all sorts of assaults against our sexuality, and, and so we offer those to you as well, Jesus. We renounce any part that we've played in agreeing with the enemy or binding ourselves to him, and we renounce those. We break those agreements now in Jesus' name. Jesus, we seek to be intimate with you, and we know that intimacy with you is what our hearts deeply yearn for. It's not only the goal of this life, it's, it's the promise of the next, and so we just ask that you'd move powerfully now within us, that we might be intimate with you. Holy Spirit, come and remove every foothold of the enemy in our hearts. We ask that, that where we have given him access, where we've allowed him to, to put a cam in and to create a secure line, Lord, we just break that now in the name of Jesus Christ. And then now, Lord Jesus, what we want to do is we want to consecrate our sexuality to you. We ask that we would release it unto, under your care that we would place our sexuality and be submissive under your lordship. And Lord, we do ask that you would allow us to have a right perspective. We want to walk in intimacy and holiness with you. And we know you have a plan for us. So please show us what that plan is and help us to walk humbly in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.